We are on Revelation 15. And I'm going to try to go... I really want to get through this stuff today because I don't want any of it for next, next time because next time we get together, really what we should be talking about is heaven. Okay? And so I, I'm going to push hard to get through all this stuff today. All right? Keep talking. All right, here we go. So... Um, when I, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, uh, seven angels with seven plagues, uh, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. So this, this, this plague or this, uh, this vision, it, what we kind of see happening is that they get worse <laughs> as you go through the book. The destruction becomes more thorough. And it's still kind of this whole image of, you know, these are things that are happening from the some of these things are happening from the ascension till Christ's second coming. But this, this is the last of three, uh, of a three-part vision, so to speak. And this is the one that's just like, boom, this is the end. All right? Uh, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Now, I was dealing with some weird textual stuff in the sermon. There's some seriously weird textual stuff here. Like, the grammar is so bad that you kind of have to guess what it means. Okay? In this particular verse. And, the, the, and I'm not taking issue with what, they, what they've done here. Because I'm not saying I'd have done any better. But you can go one of two ways with this translation. And the text is not helpful Okay, it could be that these are those who um, they've conquered or these are those who have been conquered. That's a big difference. It's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. But I think I think that it actually ought to be those who have been conquered. Because when you think about the way revelation works, it's written to people who are being ground down, who are being crushed. And so what we're seeing is kind of a vision of what's going on in heaven. And so we have this, this sea of glass, and it's mingled with fire. And that's kind of an image of the, the conflict that's going on on earth, symbolic of that. And, and, and it's, it's the warfare of God's people and, and, and the, the satanic, demonic work that's going on in this, this chaos that is life. And so then you have these people outside, and these are the people, these are the martyrs. That's why I think it's better translated those who have been defeated because in defeat we conquer, if that makes sense. Jesus wins the victory by losing, right? By dying. That's what this is saying, I think. So they're looking on and they're seeing, but these are the saints who have gone before. These are those who have suffered for the faith and they're looking and, and, and they're, they're recognizing what's going on and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And it's this, this great hymn of praise. Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. O King of the nations, who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you with your righteous acts for your righteous acts have been revealed. So it's just this big image of, you know, God comes and everybody's like, oh, I recognize. Whether they want to believe it or not, you know, it's, you know that's, that's a different part of the conversation. After this, I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. It means they're representing God. They're representing Jesus as they're going about this work. And one of the four living creatures, you remember those from earlier in the book, they're the ones that lead worship in heaven, um, gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God um, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Um, so the, this, this image uh, of, of the, the bull, I, actually I'll get more into that next, uh, in the next slide here, but um, the smoke fills the temple 
you kind of have that in Isaiah. Uh, you have that in um, the building of the tabernacle. And, and one of the thoughts that I heard about this is that, you know, as we look at life and we think about where God is in it, often his role is concealed. You know, Luther used to say that God works um, through masks. You know, so, you know, your neighbor helps you. Did God help you? Yeah, he helped you through your neighbor. You know, um, you can even talk about laws of nature and things like that as the way that God established things. And so I think that part of what this is saying is that um, God's work is somewhat concealed. And I think that this might be kind of getting at this idea that, that God's... the the victory of God's people is concealed. Because when you look at what happens in the church, it, I mean, from the outside perspective, people look at the church, we're a mess. Are we winning the victory? Absolutely. Because of Christ. But I think, it's, I think we're playing a different game than the world's playing. And, you know, and so the victory looks different for us. And so these ones who have been conquered, these ones who have been killed for the faith, they win. They lost, but they won. And they're there in God's presence and they're experience, experiencing the fullness of, of his salvation. I'm not going to ask if that makes sense because, you know, a lot of this doesn't. It's just kind of, what? Um, the seven bowls of God's wrath. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple. This is God's voice calling out to the seven angels. Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Um, the word that we translate bowl here, uh, this, this might be like a, a, a wide, flat pan, kind of shallow, or it could be like a funeral urn. It's used both ways uh, in the, the ancient texts. Um, so this is the same word that's used in chapter 5 when the angels have, um, uh, they're holding pans, with uh, incense on them. So some people choose to translate this as their censers. So you know, maybe you'll see that or maybe you've heard that at some point. You know, they throw their censer down. You know, um, but I, I, think that, um, I think the bowl is the better image You because know, they talk about pouring it out. Um, and, and these, it's not a happy thought, but these are the seven bowls of the wrath of God, God punishing uh, sin on the earth. And he's bringing about the end. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Um, so one of the things that we're going to see as we go through these is that there are a lot of parallels here between these plagues and the plagues in Egypt. When the Israelites were enslaved. And uh, you know, we remember that there was a plague of boils. And we also remember that at some point... God separated the plagues so that, um, you know, the Egyptians experienced it, but the Israelites did not. Same kind of thing going on with this plague. That there is this, this skin disease and the Christians are spared. Now, what's going on here? It's really not clear. This is really, really, um, you know, when we look at history and we look at how this has been interpreted, you know, what is, what is this um, you know, this, these painful sores, you know, do we interpret this spiritually? Do we interpret it physically? Uh, I think, I think that part of what this is saying is just sometimes life is hell and you just feel awful, you know, and, you know, and that's just kind of the way life is. You just, sometimes people just, they just feel miserable and that's kind of the way life is. And in that, in that Christians should have hope so that this plague doesn't impact us the same way that it does the rest of the world. Because when we take our pains to Christ, it gives us hope to overcome them. Take that or leave it. That's kind of what I see going on here. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. So earlier, um, a star came down into the sea, and a third of the sea life died this time it's all dead you know and we have the blood and the water thing going back to the uh, the egyptian uh plagues again and uh, uh and all this all this sea life dies and and, and again in, in the third bowl um the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood 
and there's this, this image of pollution and life being awful. You know, you just, you know, that, that all of these things, they, they're, they're, it's like the, the, the earth is being churned up against humanity. And creation is becoming completely inhospitable for the people who live on earth. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, no, catch that, the angel's in, angel in charge of the waters. This is something that uh, the Jews clearly believed back in the day. Um, and uh, so it kind of carries forward into this, uh, whether or not we should make too much of, you know, there's an angel in charge of all the water in the world. Uh, okay. Um, but this is, you know, God works through his mediators. So maybe there is an angel who's in charge of all the water in the world. And if there is, what difference does that make to you? Okay. Um, and this is his response to the, the destruction of this angel's territory, so to speak. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, remember we heard the altar earlier. It's those who have died for the faith, and they're under the altar. They're waiting for the resurrection, and they're praying, how long, O Lord? And here they respond, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgment. Now, a couple of things here. Um, there, there is a, 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 maybe a fear of some schadenfreude when we read this, you know, that you know, these people, the angel and, and the people in, in the, uh, the altar are rejoicing in the, the suffering of others. That's really not what's going on. You know, I mean, for a parallel, uh, if you were one of the prisoners in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany and the Americans come and you know they're going to kill a lot of Germans you go, oh, I'm so sad they're here and they're going to kill all these people that have been killing me all this time. No. You rejoice. Your salvation is at hand. And that's, that's what's going on here. That, that's, that's the response that, that we see uh, in these people. Um, I think I'm going to come to this next part later. Um, it continues on. Uh, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Um, this one's different from the plagues of Egypt. There was no, uh, no scorching sun in that one. Um, notice, though, that it, it talks about they cursed God and did not repent. One thought that did come to my mind in terms of the fulfillment of this, you know, are the concerns about global warming. You know, that as the temperature rises, the life becomes inhospitable. Um, it could be referencing something like that. It could be something completely different. You know, I, I, you know, I want to be really careful with, you know, what, what do we say this is? I, I do think that there are a lot of parallels here when you look at um, when it's, it's talking about water and pollution and air and pollution. You know, I, I I think that those could be a fulfillment of some of these things. Sure, the red tide, the fish that died in Florida. Yeah, yeah. And then bowl five, uh, the fifth bowl, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Now, this, this idea that they did not repent, this is something that's come up a couple of different times, and we've talked about this. And one of the things that strikes me, because I've been, I've been chewing on this, and I think one of the comments that was made was, well, it's not very effective. If, this, if he's, God is doing this to get them to repent and they're not repenting, it's not very effective. I think that there's something more maybe going on here. And uh, you know, I, I, I don't know why I thought of this or, or, or what made me think of it, but um, when Nineveh, when Jonah came to Nineveh, Jonah comes and he says, 40 days, Nineveh's going to be overturned. And there's just this recognition of Yahweh is coming. Oh, no, 
we are in trouble. And so what did they do? They repented. They put on sackcloth from the highest to the lowest, and they fasted, and, and they repented because a God was coming, and he was going to punish them. And I was thinking about um, when the, the, the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines, and they brought it into the Temple of Dagon, and the, the, uh, the uh, idol of Dagon kept falling over, you know, and the head falls off and the hands fall off, and then all of a sudden, people start getting sores and they start getting sick. People are like, oh no, this is God. I think that when it says that they did not repent of their deeds, that they did not, did not recognize God, I think that's saying something about their spiritual condition. That their spiritual condition has gone so far that they can't even conceive that God is doing this. And I think, that, I think that some of that is here. That we look at, you know, what happens in the world, and, oh, that's just a natural disaster. God has nothing to do with that. It's plate tectonics. That's why the world shook. You know, it has to do with warm air rising and cool air coming in, and that's why the hurricane came. We have become, in a sense, uh, science it has, in a sense, become our God. And that's not to denigrate science, because science gives good gifts. But when our trust is more in the natural phenomenon than it is in there's a God behind this. And I'm not even saying that the conclusion should be that, oh, it's Yahweh. You know, the God of the Old Testament is doing this. But I think what God is saying is that when these things happen, there should be a recognition in humanity that a God is doing something. And the people here have become so seared in their consciences, and I think there's a lot of this in our culture now, that they don't even recognize there's a God. Yeah? But yet they're cursing God. So are they cursing God because they think he's sending the plagues? Because all of a sudden, it is so in their face. What can I do? What other, what other conclusion can I come to? But it's still not enough to make them turn. Yeah, their hearts are so seared. I, you know, because I, you know, I, I, I think this is worth struggling with. What is this about? Yeah. It just it makes me think about Job and how all of his, all of the like kind of plagues that affected him, and mm-hmm. his friends wanted him to curse God. So mm-hmm. it was better, and he refused to curse God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the refusal of uh, recognizing God's authority over our lives. I mean, in, in a culture where we have preachers who teach, you know, God wants you to have your best life now. You know, the whole issue of suffering becomes something that's very, very difficult. You know, the, the whole idea that God can bring good out of suffering, um, and that that's the ultimate message, really, of the scriptures. Our ultimate good comes through the suffering and death of the Son of God. I'm not saying I like that message, but I'm saying that is the message. And I think that there's hope there when we suffer that God can do something good with it. That he can redeem that. And I think that's, I think that's important. Bill? The problem with that is that if you carry it to the ultimate is that if somebody is suffering, you can say that's because God is, is punishing you, you know. And I'm not sure that's the message we want to give to a lot of people who are suffering. But ultimately... Because this is just the opposite of what I was ever, what I normally taught or believed. Ultimately, you know, Christ suffers in our place. Yes. That's our redemption. That's our salvation. So when Jesus suffered and he died for us, did that mean that we would never suffer again? No, not at all. And I think that, you know, we, nobody wants to suffer. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know I, I'm not trying to say, that, you know, that this isn't some kind of a masochistic, you know, yay, suffering. But I think that we have, we've put it to a side and said that suffering can only be evil. And we have lost the idea that God can use the evil things that happen in our lives, the bad things that happen in our lives 
for his good and that our suffering can actually give him glory because it's in suffering that we have to act in faith, that we have to rely on him to bring us through it. See, because I've always believed that it's man's fall that caused... Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So it's sin that causes the problems. And But God is going to use that. And he, he might even direct it into your life because of sin. But he's going to use it to your glory, to his glory. But I think we have to be really careful not to... Because our tendency is to say, I figured out God, right? So... No wonder Hawaii was hit all those bad Right, bad yes. Because, oh, God sent that hurricane. Yeah. No, and Jesus says, don't be telling me that, the, don't say that the pillar fell down and killed those people because of what their parents did or blah, blah, blah. So I think that somewhere we don't get some very basic stuff. And our tendency is to say, that's not going to happen to me. It happened to you because you deserved yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, ooh, we all deserve yeah, and I think that that's another part of it. I think a lot of people have given up on the idea that we deserve this. You know, the whole, you know, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you, and I justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. Don't we leave out the temporal? Nope. <laughs> nope. And when we say that, it just bothers me to hear an evangelist get up and say, uh, you know, those people are suffering because... Oh, I, I don't think that you start with that. But, well, yes, it does bother me, like, when the televangel televangelist... Yeah, I thought you were saying that that's, like, your pitch when you're sharing the gospel to somebody. No, when, yeah, when, yeah, absolutely. Because they were sinners. Yeah. We all are. We all deserve to die badly. I mean, that's what the scriptures teach. And that's why we live in mercy. And it's such a blessing that Christ would die in our place so that we can have hope. Even as we face all of the garbage and the, the pain and suffering that is life. Yeah. Also, I think, isn't, isn't God's ultimate goal in our lives to make us more like his son? Yeah. So our earthly existence is to become more like Christ, right? Mm -hmm. Who absolutely suffered yeah. more than any of us will ever suffer. Mm -hmm. And yet God's will was being played out through that. So yep. I think it's such a comfort to think, even if we don't understand where the suffering came from or why, yeah. but to think that somehow God is going to use this to make this situation more glorifying to him. It helps us through even... Mm -hmm. The worst. Absolutely. And it always amazes me how the, the painful experiences of our lives, they, they have the, uh, the potential to prepare us to deal with other people when they walk through that same type of pain. They often soften our hearts, you know, so that we become more uh, tenderhearted toward other people. You know, it, he uses these things. Truly? I was just going to say, um, I think our suffering that we, there's a lot of things we have to go through in the suffering, mentally, physically, whatever. But I think our reliance on God, knowing that he is there with us, and he has his purposes for allowing it. I mean, he could heal whatever yeah. if he wanted to. But he's doing something in us, or someone else that's watching, and he, his his goal for us is to draw near to him. Yep. I had a neighbor. Um, he had all kinds of health problems. He was a member of, the, the, of, of Good Shepherd up in Michigan. And, um, you know, I would visit him in the hospital, and he was always so at peace. You know, I mean, he's having surgery. He might die during type of, you know, I mean, that kind of health problems. He just, you know, oh, okay, yeah. And, you know, he told me that, you know, he had had the opportunity to witness to, several of the nurses and, you know, doctors and other patients because they're like, how are you so calm? Because hmm, I know the end. Jesus has won the victory for me. He died in my place and I'm going to rise and I'm going to live forever. I, I mean, I'm not saying that he was enjoying himself. He was in a lot of pain. He was in suffering. But God used it. 
you know, and, and God was glorified in that, I think. Yeah? Why do some people believe and others not? Like, I had huh. kinds of cancer, and my son says, why do you still believe? He and his wife stopped believing because she had cancer. Mm-hmm. And they don't go to church, and, I mean, I raised my son, who's confirmed in the church and everything, but his son doesn't go to Sunday school, vacation Bible school, confirmation. He says, well, if he wants to believe, he can. Well, how's he going to believe if he doesn't go to those things? Yeah. You know, you, you just asked the eternal question, why some and not others? And that's something we're not going to understand until we get there. And I think our hope is, wherever they are now, that something will happen. Yeah. God doesn't give up on us, thank goodness. Right, exactly. All right. Now, starting with verse 12, there's a shift that's going on. The stuff that we read about before, these things are in some way always going on from Jesus' ascension to the end. Now, starting with this, this... Verse 12, when we talk about the sixth bowl, this is the end. You know, there's no timeline given for this, but this is descriptive of the last day. So, and how do you know that? Um, just because of the things that happen here. Um, you know, it, it talks about uh, uh, some things that are rather, really rather final. Okay. You know, yeah, you're welcome to disagree. No, I'm just curious as to if there's some... No, a lot of this comes, you know, years of tradition and, you know, what do we see here? What's going on in the text? You know, all of those things. Um, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates uh, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. That's what's telling us this is the end. The river Euphrates was kind of the boundary between Israel and the enemies that were Babylon and Assyria. It's dried up. There's no barrier between them. This is all coming to a head, okay? Uh, And I saw coming out of the mouths of the dragon and the mouth of the beast and the mouth of the false prophet, which is the other beast, um, those three beasts that we were talking about last week, I believe it was, three unclean spirits like frogs. Okay, we're back into that Egyptian, you know, imagery again, the the plague of frogs. Uh, And they are demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. He's bringing all the powers of, all the powers of darkness, so to speak, to try to defeat God. And it's interesting, we have a response here, um, which in my Bible is red, which means it's Jesus. So we interpret this to be Jesus speaking. And because he's said things like this in the past, too. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may, go, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So the river Euphrates is dried up. These, these three frogs from the, uh, the dragon and, and the beast, uh, you know, it looks like they're winning. They're all getting assembled and they're powerful. And then Jesus speaks. You know, and, and it's just, what? Well, you know, big deal. You know, you're going to, you know, come against me? I'm coming. That's the message. I'm coming. And I'm going to come like a thief. You got these great big plans and you think you have it all figured out. But I'm going to show up. And blessed is the one who's awake at that time. Because you think you're ready, but you're not. You know, and he's, he's speaking to his enemies, you know, to some degree here. But he's also encouraging us to keep awake, to keep our garments on, you know, and, and you know, to not go about naked. To not go about in our own works, to not go about in our own righteousness, but to wear the robe of righteousness that he gives us. Because otherwise we're exposed. We're, you know, powerless. Now, a lot has been made of Armageddon. Uh, if you translate Armageddon, it means the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is a plain in, uh, in Israel. And the valley of Megiddo was considered a great place to have battle. It's one of those places in Israel that's actually flat. So, you know, people sometimes, I remember when I was a kid, they're like, do you think this is Armageddon? No, I don't think it's Armageddon because Armageddon is symbolic of a place where the last great battle 
uh, in which God's enemies are defeated takes place. You know, and it's all done in God's power. You know, again, we shouldn't be getting twisted about, you know, this sign or that sign. You know, this will happen. And Jesus is going to come like a thief. So guess what? You're going to be surprised when it happens. Do you think that this is going to No, I really don't. Do you think Jesus is going to come back in 2026? No, I really don't. Do you think he could come back this evening? Yes, I do. <laughs> you know, he's just you know, always ready. And then we get the seventh bowl. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Uh, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. Uh, that's Babylon. Uh, you know, when it says it's split into three parts, you know, it's, it's divinely divided uh, in his judgment. And the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And the great hailstones, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. So lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, earthquake. Does that sound familiar? It's pretty much the end of all the different visions, isn't it? And... What's new here is the 100-pound uh, the hail. And I think that that gets drawn in again because we're dealing with all this Egyptian uh, imagery. You know, what comes out of the, ha- out of the air? You know, one of the most devastating things that can come out of the air is hail. You know, even without it being 100 pounds, it can be absolutely devastating, um, even deadly. Yeah? Isn't there kind of a little connection, too, to the crucifixion? I mean, when I see yeah. it is it is finished in an earthquake and everything. It's kind of... Uh, yeah, I thought of that too. And, I, and so I looked at the original and those are different words, but the concept is very similar. The, uh, the, it is finished from the cross. It's actually a business term, which means the bill is paid in full. Um, but here, uh, it, it's, it, you know, it's happened. It, it would be another way that you can translate it. It's done. You know, and, and I do think that this is, you know, this is God's voice saying... The plan is complete. Salvation is at hand. They're very parallel to each other. Absolutely. Another parallel is this cup of God's wrath. You know, it talks about the cup of God's wrath multiple times in the prophets and, and in the Psalms. You know, and it being drunk, drowned to the, drunk down to the dregs. Well, who actually does that? Jesus. You know, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. You know, he drinks the cup of God's wrath on behalf of all who believe in him. He actually drinks it on behalf of the whole world, but the only way to receive the benefit, you know, it's kind of like the cup is there, and you know, and everybody is supposed to drink the whole thing, and you're all in line, and you get up there, and you're like, ah, no, Jesus actually drank that for me. Oh, as you were, you know. Um, and, you know, and the person who gets up there and says, you know, I don't believe Jesus drank it for me. Suck it up. I say that in kind of a cavalier way, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a sad and horrible thing. Chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels, so one of the ones that were pouring out bowls, um, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine and, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting in a, on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. Does that sound familiar? So we've, we've, we've seen this beast before. Um, it's the political beast. 
Um, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now in the Old Testament, um, uh, uh, idolatry is often referred to as adultery. And uh, you know, if you'll, you'll pardon the uh, rather strong language, God actually says to them, you know, stop whoring around you know, with other gods. And, uh, uh, and so this, this, this woman, uh, this great prostitute, it, it is every power that encourages idolatry and perhaps even the greatest idolatry of all, which, you know, I, I think that, that we could probably debate what exactly that would be, um, but it would be man's power in some form over God's. And she sits on, on many waters. Babylon literally had many canals, so it's just taking that imagery of Babylon and saying, you know, this is, this is Babylon. And Babylon is the symbol of God's enemies. And... Um, she leads the leaders of the earth, the kings, into sexual immorality. Leads them in, into some kind of idolatry, some kind of false worship. And the thought that came to my mind um, is kind of this worship of power. I was going to say it's not very different from today. No, it's not. It's not. Uh, you know, and, and I, it, it's one of the things I, I've been thinking about a lot. You know, and so just because I'm thinking about it doesn't mean it's right. But I've been kind of chewing on this idea that you know, in our culture... You know, I think that one of the gods that we have is government. Where do we turn to for everything that's good for us? Who's going to make everything right? Is your world good or bad because Trump is president? You know, if, you know, the Democrat gets elected the next president, did your world just fall apart? And, you know, and I just, I keep seeing these things and I keep wondering... I mean, when you look at what happened in, in Russia with the rise of the, the Soviet powers, they very much put themselves intentionally in the place of God. You know, you know they would say, there is no God, there is the state. You know, and in a sense, you know, put your hope and your faith and your trust in the state. So, you know, I, I see this and I hear, you know, this, this talk about sexual immorality and I, and I can't help but wonder, you know, if those things are connected. This red beast, I mentioned before, this is the political beast um, that the dragon called up out of the sea. And uh, this woman is richly dressed. She's beautiful. She's very appealing to the eye. You know, she has all of the, these very fine clothes and jewelry. She looks like she has it all together. You know, she's a temptation. And again, I think that this temptation to idolatry has to do a lot with putting human power over God's power. Whether that is, I am the, the, the final measure of my own life, you know, the master of my own destiny and all of this type of stuff that we Americans love so much. Or it's the, uh, you know, that kind of that governmental thing that I was talking about earlier. Um, and she has this golden cup full of abominations which again, I think that it's just more temptation. It's just temptation upon temptation to turn away into some kind of idolatry, to turn away from God. And she's drunk on the blood of the saints and the martyrs, the witnesses. That's what a martyr is. When we hear the word martyr, we often think of those who die for the faith. But in Greek, the word martyr just means a witness. It's someone who testifies about Jesus. And, and so she's set in this 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 position where she's destroying God's people, even to the point of, you know, devouring and drinking their blood. You know, so, I mean, it's a very evil, evil image. And it goes on and says, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Does that formula sound kind of familiar? 
I think that this saying, you know, that this was and, and is not and is about to rise from the pit, it's kind of an antichrist. You know, it, the, you know, Christ is the one who was and is and is to come. And I think that, you know, it's saying this one is set against him. And the dwellers of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. And when we hear the word wisdom, I think that we can almost, almost put the word faith there. You know, that we're taking God's word, we're applying it to our lives, but it's going to require a lot of trust. Um, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And while he does come, he must remain only a little while. Um, Rome was famously built on seven hills. Babylon, Rome, symbols of God's enemies, for sure. You know, symbols of world domination and world power, definitely. Um, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the, to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For, it, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called the chosen and faithful. So the seven kings, seven Caesars, maybe, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that's written that points to who these might be. None of them agree. You know, uh, so if it is, we don't know which ones. You know, these 10 kings, they're going to rule for one hour, you know, a short period of time. And I think it's, again, that God has shortened the time out of his mercy. People have identified him all over the place. We don't know. You know, but you know, the, the idea is that these evils are coming into the world and you're going to live in them. And you, the call is to be faithful because in the end, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he's going to show up and he's going to win the day. Now, what we do know about these seven kings and these ten kings is that they are of one mind. And that one mind is to make war on the Lamb. There are very few powers across history that tolerate allegiance to some other power or to a higher power. And I think that that's what that's talking about, that as we live in faith, that as we seek to be faithful to God, there will be pressures and there will be even dangers in our lives because other powers will want our allegiance and not accept that we have allegiance to someone else. And, you know, and we've, we've seen this in history. You know, Soviet Russia has all kinds of examples. Nazi Germany has all kinds of examples. I'm sure there are lots of examples you know, in the Middle East and in North Korea with our brothers and sisters who are in those areas now. But the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, uh, actually this time it's Lord of Lords and King of Kings, he shows up and, uh, and he, he is the Lamb. And the Lamb conquers. You know, and, and he rescues his people uh, those called and chosen and faithful. So, I mean, the ultimate message is, you know, no matter what's going on in life, no matter the difficulties, the pains, the suffering, Jesus wins. And when Jesus wins, you win. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So notice before I mentioned that, you know, there's this connection to Babylon because it had all these canals in it. She's sitting on all these waters. Now he's shifting the image to say, these are peoples, these are nations. And I think that the symbolism here is that this, this, this prostitute, um, you know, her goal is to dominate, or she does dominate, the human race. This temptation to idolatry dominates human history. You know, this call to, to worship other gods. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Here's an interesting thing all of a sudden. 
So it looks like they're on the same side, but they hate the prostitute and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And at that time, they would definitely roam. You know, I'm not sure that you can say, you know, it, it, it definitely Rome. I, I think that we look and we see all kinds of examples of, you know, great cities that everybody turns to. I think that you could say Washington, D.C. I think that you could say Beijing. I think you could say Moscow. You know, that, you know this kind of shifts from place to place depending upon where you, what your context is. And it just fascinates me that the whole destruction of this, that God kind of brings it from the inside, so to speak, that the lesser powers long to take the greater power. And they seek to topple that power that's, that's above them, which is exactly what you know, this power is doing to God. It wants to topple him. And they have all these, these powers underneath her, And she's like, yeah, we're going to topple God and put an idol in his place. And they're plotting how they topple her. You know, every idol gets supplanted by another idol if it doesn't destroy its worshipers first. Chapter 18 is the response to the fall of Babylon. And there's there's all kinds of incredible poetry that goes on uh, through here. And there are just a couple parts of this that I want to highlight because almost all of it is just, you know, you know Babylon has fallen. You know, all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her, of her sexual immorality and, and, and this kind of stuff. But when you look at verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. He's remembered. He's coming in punishment. Come out, my people. I don't want you to be swept up in this. I don't want you to be sucked up in her idolatry and in the punishment that, that's coming upon her. Multiple times through this, it, it says that her fall and her collapse, Babylon's fall and collapse, comes in a single day or a single hour. And that tells us that God's judgment comes quickly and unexpectedly. We have the same imagery in, in, in Matthew when he talks about, um, well, what a lot of times people point to when they talk about the rapture, when they say, you know, two people will be out in the, the field, one will be taken and the other left. What they fail to see often is that the one that's taken, that, that, that imagery there is actually judgment. It's not, you know, oh, all the saints disappear all of a sudden and this world becomes a living hell. No. It's talking about how God's judgment comes... You know, and there's nothing that can be done to stop it. It comes quickly. And, and the different groups lament about this. You, you, know, you have um, the kings who lament over it. You have business people who lament over it. Um, the, 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 the sailors, they lament. And that all has to do with finances and business. Because do people worship money? Yeah, that's absolutely one of the idols that, that are in our lives. And then in verse 20, Again, what I was saying before about this isn't schadenfreude, uh, but rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Your salvation has come. You've been oppressed. You're being killed. You're being attacked on all sides. But now God has come, and and he brings his salvation. And this mighty angel comes, and he throws a millstone into the sea. Another image from the Gospels. You know, Someone who causes one of these little ones to sin to be better, to have a millstone tied around their neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea. Um, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Uh, it talks about how in verse 23, all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Um, just a kind of a, I'll call it a fun aside. That word sorcery in Greek is pharmakia where we get our word pharmacy. Do people put their faith in drugs above God? Yeah. Now, 
again, just like what we've been talking about, Bill has brought it up a couple times, that government is a good gift from God. Is medicine a good gift from God? Absolutely. If you put your faith in medicine and not in God, is that a bad thing? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's not recognizing the giver of the gift. And then verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. And, and, and so this is, she's ultimately being punished for murder. And that's what idolatry is. When, we, when somebody is led into idolatry, it's like murder. You know, people are like, oh, you can worship whatever you want. It really doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. No, it's death. All right. One minute. Chapter 19. Verses 1 through 5, they, they, they talk about worship at God's salvation. You know, so you have some, there's some passage here you will love. So please read these. You know, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. You know, this is, uh, this is the feast type of stuff. You know, hallelujah comes up, you know, multiple times here. Uh, three times just in the first few verses. Um, and, uh, uh, and then you have this marriage supper. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. Well, guess who that is? That's you. Because the groom is Christ and the, the bride is the church and you're the family. And you get to be part of this great celebration. And this whole image of God's salvation, it's so overwhelming that as John is interacting with the angel who's giving him this vision, he's just, you know, what do you do with this? And in verse 10, he's so overwhelmed, it says that I fell down at the feet to worship him, to worship the angel. Because he's just, his mind is so completely blown. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I think that that's, that's, that's hugely important. Um, have, have you ever met people who are so gaga about angels? It's almost like they worship him, them. Yeah. Angels are servants of God just like us. They just do it in a different way. And in heaven... In the new creation, we are higher than they are in kind of the social order, so to speak. The angels are there to serve us. So don't be too overwhelmed by them. And I think that we'll save, uh, we'll start with verse 11 next time we get together to talk about the white rider. All right. I think we are in good shape to spend a lot of time talking about heaven next week. Thank you, everybody.